It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to The Higher Calling. This is Chester Moore, and one of the things in life that fascinates me most is the idea of remoteness. In my life, I've been able to be in some places where I, at least I thought I was pretty far out from civilization. I mean, whether it's up in the mountains in Colorado or up in Montana or Western Texas or down in the jungles of Venezuela, I've been some places where I didn't at least think there was that much habitation or access. And then I did a, a research recently and I came across a project called Project Remote that is probably the most fascinating thing I've seen in years. And it's um, a project by a family, the Means family, Ryan and Rebecca Means, who both have degrees in various aspects of wildlife ecology and zoology and forestry. And they set out to locate the most remote spots in the United States of America. And today we have them on Higher Calling. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chester. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Well, let's just start from the beginning. Uh, how did Project Remote begin? Well, I'll tell you, um, <laughs> it was an evolution, really, Chester, but um, there was a sort of an epiphany gate-opening moment about 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, one of us, it happened to be me, I was walking down a beach in Florida, and it was completely crowded and packed, like you can imagine Florida beaches to be. And sure. I was at a time in life reaching my middle age, I suppose you might call it approaching 40 at that time. And mm -hmm. I was itching and wondering about something meaningful that I could do that we could do, um, to contribute to knowledge, to do something exciting, wonderful, amazing, but we love remoteness too. And, uh, we, we love anything outdoors. So I'm walking down, the beach and I'm wondering to myself how can I get as far away from this circus as humanly possible and, and could I actually get that done in our home state of Florida mm -hmm. what is it now the third most populous state in the country and so I'm wondering about this and I, first you got to think about remote uh, how do you get a how do you get away from people and what does it mean and um, the word remote pops up. And so what's the definition of remote? And I'm thinking about this as I'm walking down the beach. It's like, well, it's getting as far away from humans as possible. Mm -hmm. And how could you do that? And how could you know that you were actually doing it and quantify it? So I got to start, I started thinking about the quantification of remoteness and how and whether we could actually locate or even precisely calculate the exact farthest location from it all, if you will, civilization, mm -hmm. what that means, humans, right? And so enter my wife's skill set. I got so excited thinking about this concept of literally precisely calculating the remotest location from civilization in our state, our home state of Florida, that I ran home from that hike, <laughs> shared the idea with Rebecca. We poured a glass of wine, had dinner, and really be begun 
to hash out our idea for doing that in the state of Florida to precisely calculate the remotest location using her skill set with GIS. And then uh, literally once we did that, once we thought of doing that, we just absolutely had to stand there. We had, we knew that we had to be wherever this precise calculation uh, would take us. But you know what? There was one little problem with that. What's that? <laughs> I wouldn't call her a problem. Oh, I don't call her a ah, your daughter, Skylar, right? Skylar, yes. Yeah. Um, so she was about five months at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we knew we were, were going to take her with us, but that, that added some logistical uh, issues. Um, but the other part of the story is that, so once we do Florida, then we want to want to do other states as well. And mm-hmm. as we started calculating how far you could get from a road in other states, it shocked us just as much as I'm sure it shocked you when you were reading on the website. So then we realized it's a lot bigger of a story than just us trying to get away from it and have a wilderness experience as a family. And, and it was a, a larger issue across the country that you just can't get very far from a road. The road network has has expanded to the point that we don't even know where all the roads are. Um, and so it became alarming as we were calculating more and more states and you were getting 2.7 miles from a road or 1.3 miles from a road and in states that you thought you could get a lot farther. I had a conversation with uh, Jack Hanna, the famous wildlife host one time, and he was talking about how developed America is and, um, you know, even other many parts of the world. And he said um, that, you know, you think you're in the wild, but if you really look around, you're not that far out in the wild in many places. And so I thought that was kind of interesting in what you're talking about here. He's absolutely right, Chester. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we had to we had to make a definition. Yeah. In, in order to do what we were going to do, we had to create and, and develop a working definition of remoteness. And we're scientists um, by by um, profession. We're outdoor scientists, biologists, and we we uh, got to thinking about how to create a precise definition that uh, would be um, that would allow us to make precise calculations and then apply the same methodology state by state and then be able to uh, make comparisons between the states here and so we I tell you what it took a long time longer than you might think to to create a powerful definition of remoteness um, I'll say that story, but um, what we finally figured on was uh, distance from a road or otherwise uh, human habitation that might be off of the road system. We're going to find that in Alaska, as a matter of fact. There are villages all out in the wilderness out there, and you got to fly in only. And so we, we uh, amended our maximum distance from a road definition to also include uh, off road villages and so you know there are things there are towers there are okay so road what does that equal we we had to really hash out the definition of a road and, yeah because on. i've actually found like landlocked roads before like yes yeah like you know the old an old landing strip or something that was 
you know, years ago was out in the middle of a forest that had been cleared and no one's messed with it in all the year, all the years. Okay. Well, in the case of that, uh, we would, we would find that to be a positive thing. And you know what we've ran into in our nation's wilderness areas and some of our wildlands on the way to state remote spots, we have seen old roads being restored back to native habitat. And man, we are two thumbs up about that. I think that's wonderful. In fact, we think that America is so dang developed that eventually at some point we're going to have to, as a country come together and decide to make it uh, less roaded. And um, we've got, we've got examples of how to restore roads back to native habitat um, sprinkled throughout the country. So what but is the exact, what, Chester, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, um, what is a road? Well, let road equal paved, unpaved, uh, people's driveways, uh, mm-hmm. ORV tracks that are mappable and mapped, um, uh, rail, railroad tracks, mm-hmm. power line right of ways. Wow. Um, anything else, honey? Beaches, uh, according to your sure, Texas article. Basically, anything that allows for the um, intermittent or frequent travel of motorized vehicles, that's, that's basically where we're at now. And it can be public or private, too, mind you. Most of the Midwest is, is, a, is a road, we, we believe, because of the passage of giant combines um, frequently. Mm and people's driveways and ranch roads. And if we can zoom in from space on our, our mapping software and see tracks on the land, um, we're calling it a road. And so <laughs> that leads us into the, the difficulty state by state to making these calculations. It is painstaking. I'm gonna hand you to Rebecca for that one. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm not a math person, so that would totally blow my mind. Like, uh, you know, that's why I have to go to smarter people like you for this. You know, just (laughs) give me the GPS coordinate. I'll venture out there and see what I can find critter wise. But um, hike out that way. (laughs) But um, when you did this, I mean, this is a a gigantic undertaking. And you started in Florida, which is fascinating. I mean, it's your home state, but very wild in terms of a lot of the Everglades and Okefenokee and a lot of beautiful, a lot of trees, a lot of wildlife, but obviously a lot of people. And um, so just kind of start us off in in your calculation of Florida. Um, Well, the way the calculations work is that they're um, using a GIS software called ArcMap. Mm -hmm. and what, when we decided to use distance from road, that was that, you know, you have to come up with a quantifiable definition of remote if you're going to calculate it and you're sure. going to calculate it from state to state. And so we thought about things like cell towers and we even thought about hiking trails. But the reality is, is that not all hiking trails are mapped. And so there's not the data that to mm-hmm. map those mm-hmm. hiking trails. And obviously people use hiking trails. So our definition of of remote is not necessarily okay we're going to get away from all humans it's we're getting away from the concentration and so we know that roads there are data for roads for each state and so we we chose the road aspect um the the mapping program is what actually calculates the distance and it creates um 
basically a 30 meter by 30 meter grid across the whole state and then it, it finds the maximum distance from a road that you can get hmm. um but what we found is that not all roads are part of the state road data and that was the story for every state that i calculated across the country is that I would calculate the spot and then I zoom in on satellite imagery and then there would be a road there and I'd have to digitize in the roads and recalculate. And sometimes I had to do this 50, 60 times because the roads just are not either they're not public roads. So the state is not keeping track of them uh -huh. or they're new roads and the, the data just are not updated. And so it's it's taken, you know, hours and hours and hours, weeks and weeks and weeks to get the accurate amount of roads for the program to then map the farthest you can get from one. Uh, that's that's incredible. What I like about this is how in depth this is really it's like citizens. This is real science, you know, and like it's not like, OK, we're just going to go and we're going to go. We, we went 10 miles in the woods. We didn't see a person. Or, or a house you guys are actually like going in and making this quantifiable for you know using this around the nation and um so uh florida how far out could you get in florida away from a road a cell tower all the different uh applications you put to this i tell you what um it is it has one of the remotest State maximum remote spot. Really? Uh, at, at just a little bit over 17 miles from a road. It's 17.1, I believe. Wow. And I bet you can already guess where a place like that might reside in our overcrowded state. Somewhere it's in the, the Everglades, Everglades area? <laughs> That's right. You got it. You got it, man. And so it's actually along the coastline. It mm -hmm. is uh, inside the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness Area mm -hmm. along the southwest coastline inside Everglades National Park, uh, south of Everglades City. And that was a heck of a three-day boating adventure for a new family um, <laughs> heading out to their very first state remote spot. <laughs> and when we started this project, well, we didn't really know we were starting a project when we went to document Florida. <laughs> But we were not looking at islands. We were not factoring islands into our calculations. Okay. And since then, we have, you know, every state presents a new challenge that we have to decide, okay, does this count? Does this count? Um, so since we documented the Florida mainland remote spot, which is in the Everglades National Park, um, we then decided to include islands because if you just look at florida the florida keys are developed right sure. so you can develop islands and there are lots and lots of people living on islands so once we incorporated islands into our calculation the remote spot actually the actual remote spot um is potentially out on dry tortugas uh, national park which is kind of ironic because it is a very um popular there's, there's a ferry that goes out there um but we have not we have not um oh what's the word haven't confirmed that calculation <laughs> there yet gotcha. because the national park service sometimes um or you know any of our state or federal conservation lands they have roads and some of their staff use them for for land management purposes and mm -hmm. we, we get that we understand but we still count um um roads like that in our in our calculation and so we haven't confirmed that calculation just yet we've been 
gallivanting all over the country um, ever since that first attempt here in Florida. We're sitting on it, and we'll uh, pull it out of our hat here uh, again whenever we get a chance. Well, I find the Everglade thing interesting because one of my contentions about remote areas is a great kind of sanctuary areas for wildlife and stuff. And the Everglades is one of the last strongholds, and it's the last stronghold in the U.S. for the small-toothed sawfish. And um, and a friend of mine, Tanya Wiley, does with Havenworth Coastal Conservation, does her is dedicated to sawfish, and that's kind of like the last spot. Uh, where these things, as they come up into the estuaries like that to, to uh, you know, spawn. And that's kind of like the last location. And um, I think in a lot of these remote areas, they're, they're good sanctuaries for things like that. But while we're on the coast, because I want to go into some of this mountain stuff, because that's kind of what we do here in the show, uh, I got to come over to Texas, because I read your Texas thing, which is like reading an epic, like, Stephen King novel, like, length in Texas. <laughs> It was like reading The Stand or something. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> you know, and I was like, this is, and, I, and like, once again, I'm down the rabbit hole. I can't stop. I have to finish this. I have to uh, sleep. But it's so fascinating. And you mentioned Laguna Atascosa Wildlife Refuge. And then a discovery you made in Texas that beaches are drivable. Yep. Yeah. So how does that factor into uh, it, remote location? It does, man. And you've read it on, on our website. Yep. In fact, the Texas Remote Spot Expedition Journal is not quite done yet. Uh, we want to fashion that into a magazine article somewhere. But um, thanks for having read that, man. Um, to answer your question, it absolutely counts. And when we learned about the law that allows for driving on most or all of Texas beaches, we, we absolutely had to drop back and punt and uh, recalculate the Texas remote spot, um, you know, our initial calculation placed the remotest location in Texas along the south, you know, um, out the Trans-Pecos Texas shoreline. Yeah. Right where you can drive down the beach with automobiles and inside of a national wildlife refuge too, which we find that to be unfortunate. Um, you know, we're conservationists too, Chester, of course. And I think most of America is honestly. And, uh, um, well, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't rightly travel to a state remote spot and risk the chance of watching automobiles, uh, <laughs> 30 feet in front of us traveling, uh, in single file down the beach. It would have made it easier that. to just drive to the spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, story. I sure. take it. So we actually, we actually came across this same issue in Virginia and Maryland as well, hmm. because when the spot landed on the barrier islands, there, there are strips of, of the beach there that you're allowed to drive on. And so when, when that kind of thing happens, we pull up the map for whatever public land that is, mm -hmm. whether it's a wildlife refuge or a, a national park. And we look at where the, the roads are on their, you know, driving roadmaps that they all have. And then I digitize in that beach stretch where you're allowed to drive. I would digitize that in as a road. So that those beach roads are, they are roads. If you go to the beach, you see the tire tracks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I assume your original spot was probably going to be somewhere on the South Padre Island. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly, I mean, that's a, it's a beautiful area. 
Our water actually gets kind of clear in Florida-ish down there for Texas. Oh. Because uh, uh, most of where I live, the upper coast, it's very, uh, you know, we get the wrong side of the Mississippi for water clarity. But um, Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. And all those big Texas rivers are coming in, too. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, you, you found the, the remote spot out in the Trans-Pecos, out near in the Big Bend area. And, That's right. you know, I think you said 6.6 miles at that point was your uh, furthest from a road. And and honestly, as someone who's, you know, been all over Texas, whether I was turkey hunting or trying to photograph bighorns a couple of months ago out that direction, um, mm-hmm. there are so many, like, old ranches and stuff out in these areas that have private roads and, like, a lot of intro. Like, that part of Texas is, like, Texas is 97% privately owned. Um I mean, it's literally, it's 97% privately owned. And it's, other than Big Bend and Big Bend State Park and a couple of management areas in Guadalupe Mountains Park, that entire region of the state is privately owned. And mm-hmm. a lot of the landowners are rich landowners that have, you know, 100,000 acres, 75,000 acres. And they make a lot of roads and stuff out there that you might not see like these, you know, it might not like be a well-used road, but under the qualifications of a road and a travel access, it certainly calculates. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Rebecca had to spend a <laughs> hundred hours. I had to digitize all that roads. Have fun. Yeah. We, can, we can see those roads from from space, if you will, when Rebecca zooms in on mm-hmm. her on her mapping software. They are visible and we're we pull teeth that she'll call me and hey honey, you think this is my road? <laughs> uh, and we'll come and we'll look at it together and and um make the call and she'll digitize it in and then recalculate it's uh, yet another calculation attempt and we'll we'll find another possible remote spot and then zoom into that spot and more often than not see another road that we missed actually um chester that brings up a point we didn't really miss the road it's just the fact that america is more developed than any of us know mm-hmm. and uh one of the stories unfolding across this great country of ours is that we're developing it much more rapidly than uh geographers can map it and so that's that's unfortunate makes for hard calculations too i can imagine absolutely so um one of the states that uh that i love and it's fascinated me with this was was montana and um mm-hmm. i mean there's so much open spaces there and you have of course that big intact yellowstone system which has a i was in yellowstone in september and i and i, and I did a uh on my radio show I also have a radio show called more outdoors i did a broadcast and as i got back i said I felt like I was 200 years in the past in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone, except, I mean, thank God I got to drive the road because I got to photograph Grizzly. But uh, there's a road going through the middle of it. So it's not like roads are necessarily bad, but I think we have to have a point where we start going, you know what, let's leave some wilderness, wilderness, what we got left. And so let's yeah, talk. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so let's just, you know, so let's talk about that whole idea of Montana, because if you think of a big open place in a lower 48, that's kind of the probably the state that comes to mind. That or Wyoming, both, yeah. both, both too, absolutely, yeah. So what did sure. you find there? I'm, I mean, if you had that much problem in Texas, I mean, what did you find up there? Well, there's some, there are some pretty substantial public lands in Montana mm-hmm. and wilderness areas. And so I think that was the big difference between calculating Texas and Montana is sure. that there, there are huge national forests and the wilderness areas are large there. So 
um, it didn't necessarily land on private land a whole lot yeah. for Montana. So yeah. anywhere where we have large amounts of, of public land, it's usually the spots are, well, almost all the time the spots land on public land, um, but it's a lot easier to calculate when there are large, large pieces of land. A wilderness area, by definition, is unroaded. Mm-hmm. And so when our calculation for a state uh, places the remotest location inside the center of a giant wilderness area, we're pretty certain at that point that w- we're not going to find another road and have to recalculate. And so, you know, many of our big western states have giant roadless wilderness areas. And more often than not, in the west, our our state remote spots are located within such of a wilderness area. And that's what happened in Montana. Um, there is a place out there that Westerners lovingly call the Bob, and it refers to the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And it's actually a wilderness complex. It's a bunch of wilderness areas all adjoining the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And so all of them together function as an even greater ecosystem and a much larger roadless area. Man, we had the greatest time as a family. The Montana Remote Spot Expedition was... Uh, It was. It was our longest exposure in the wilderness as a family on Project Remote thus far. And back at that point, we were still carrying Skyla on our back. Oh, were we? Uh, (laughs) Rebecca (laughs) primarily was doing that because she's super. Oh, were we? I got that. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Got it. See, his pack got lighter over time as we ate our food. Mine got heavier. I hear you. (laughs) It was incredible. It was a 10 day exposure for us as a as a family and just every day was a challenge and an adventure and uh we have that written up on our website too man maybe you had a chance to read that yeah, 18 early. miles right 18 miles That's from right. montana which is which is pretty dang impressive but um shifting over right next door to wyoming you have what at least at the time of what i saw here it was the most remote that you looked at so far it is true. That is thus far the remotest location in the lower 48 mm-hmm. that we have found on the continental mainland. That's an important um, yes. qualifier sure. there. And uh, we think there's a possibility to, to be in an even more remote location on an island somewhere, but we haven't confirmed that for the lower 48. Um, Alaska certainly will have a more remote location than Wyoming, but um, yep. That was our remotest location to ever stand in thus far as a family on Project Remote. And that was another extremely long trip, like uh, seven or eight days, as I recall. And the Montana and the Wyoming trips each were about 70 to 75 miles of travel into and out of the remote spot uh, as a family. And we loved all our gear and our precious little daughter. um, And... uh, had amazing times, man. We saw grizzlies. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, being me, I have to ask about the critters, especially the predators. Uh, what yeah. did you see in these locations? I mean, did you see grizzlies, bears, moose? You know, two two grizzlies in Montana, mm-hmm. um, and they were they were two of the of the kinds of sightings that that we as nature lovers would want to have. Yes, it was exhilarating. Just any time you lay eyeballs on something large enough to take your life. Uh, sure. especially standing there in the wilderness, um, is an, is an exhilaration, but both of those times, uh, 
one of the bears was about a quarter mile off. And mm-hmm. as soon as he saw us, he or she bolted into the brush and never to be seen again. And the other one was more like 50 yards mm-hmm. off and did exactly the same thing, bolted uh, in a line tangent to where we were standing. We just saw the, the brush and the leaves flying and, and, and it, it looked like a, you know, a galloping bison going through the brush, but certainly was a grizzly and was not barreling toward us at least. And that's a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. man. You got your daughter on your back. Everything you care about you is standing right there with you, and uh, you're vulnerable. But most bear encounters are completely benign like that, albeit still very exciting. Um, but we had bear spray with us. But, again, with something so large coming at you, uh, you, you – you know, you're not sure that anything is going to work against it. And from a, <laughs> from a um, fear factor, I guess, I, when we were in Wyoming, I was more concerned with the mountain lions than I was with the grizzlies yeah. because we had such a small child. And she also, she's a pretty independent daughter. Yep. And so yep. she likes to go and make little forts for her dolls or her critters. And yep. she'll just go play far from us. So um, that was more of a concern in Wyoming, even though there are grizzlies galore in Yellowstone. But um, in the back of my mind, that was more of a concern. Well, I, uh, I worked with captive mountain lions on and off for a long time. Uh, and I can tell you this much, their demeanor, even captive cats, would change when a kid walked by. Uh, I mean, I, I have seen a lion that I've been photographing and, and I would be laying my belly and he's in this huge enclosure, naturalistic, and I'm getting these great photos and he's just sitting there and it's hot in the summer looking at me and I'm waiting for him to do something interesting. And then like the kid of the people on the sanctuary walk by, the eyes just turn and then gets in that mode, you know, so I can definitely... Wyoming. <laughs> I can I can attest that like that is a I always warn people like if you have a kid hiking in lion country and now I actually the dynamic of coyotes is starting to change and uh, coyotes are something I'm starting to warn people about when you have little kids especially like you know like three four year old little real little kids mm-hmm. um, we're starting to see a lot more coyote aggressive behavior in some of these areas because people are feeding them. And, um, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty crazy thing. You don't want to feed the predators. That's for sure. Yeah, right. No doubt. So I when you're in these areas, did you ever come across rutting moose? We, no. we saw a moose in, in Maine. In Maine. Okay. The moose was not rutting, but you're lucky. Uh, if you, if you pressure a moose, they're uh-huh. certainly going to get defensive and whether they're running or not. And, uh, we were not close enough to, to cause this moose to be defensive yep. uh, up in Maine. We just Ooh, had a bison. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> bison South <laughs> Oh, man. The, the Badlands bison uh, uh, is a creature that became perturbed about our too close presence. Oh, and boy. It did just what, just what people say it will do. It lifted that tail up a little bit, mm-hmm. and it got sort of broadside to us to show us the massive hulking body. And uh, we had to add an extra at least half mile onto our trek so that we could give that. But we went over the hill. We were walking around the bison. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, got you, man. I was. We were more afraid of that bison, I think, <laughs> than just about anything. Well, I mean, in Yellowstone, they hurt more people than anything, and uh, I have a yeah. photo to show why. 
there's this little <laughs> spot you pull over, you know, to take photos and stuff. And there's this lady in, and she, the only people who ever do this I see are typically Midwesterners who've never been out in the wilderness. Like, if you're from Texas, you're used to like rattlesnakes and feral hogs, and you know, yeah. it always they always end up being from some place that they've never seen this stuff. And there's this lady, and there's about a two thousand pound bull walking by. He's eight oh. eight feet, and he's as big as you get, you know. And he's eight feet. I mean, probably seven or eight feet past the little barricade. And she walks oh, right over, and I said, "Lady, lady, lady." She's like, "You don't, <laughs> don't do that." She goes, "No, it's just a buffalo." And I'm like, "They hurt more people." You see these signs, you know. So she kind of. <laughs> You know, and I said, well, if this happens, I'm going to sell this photo to National Geographic. So, like, I started taking pictures. Oh, man. Yeah, right. And she didn't get hit. The, the bison kind of looked at her like she was an idiot and kind of walked off. But people don't understand, you know, some of that dynamic. And uh, I really understand and people who don't spend that time in the outdoors really don't know the nature of it. I mean, like bears, we're talking about grizzlies, but I just had an article in Sports Field. And the opening line of my article was, I'd rather be attacked by a grizzly than a black bear. And, um, because there is very, very in-depth studies that um, almost all black bear attacks on people are predatory in nature. Um, most grizzly attacks are territorial, so they might might kill you, but they're usually probably not going to eat you. But almost every black, 89% of black bear attacks documented in America were predatory, and they were a large uh, male. And so I tell people, you know, you might see a grizzly and freak out, which you should. I mean, because a grizzly is going to be more aggressive by nature. But the attack from a black bear, so if you get attacked by a grizzly, you play dead. You get attacked by a black bear, you got to fight back. And people t tend to, because I was talking to people while we're watching the grizzly, about a quarter mile away like you talked about, and I'm eating an elk kill, a, a sow and two cubs in, in Yellowstone. And they were like, well, we go in the Adirondacks, and they're from New York, and we see black bears, and we don't worry. We just kind of walk by them. I'm like, no, 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 no. Just use, <laughs> use your caution. Don't just, don't not respect that animal you know so that's part of what i do is try to educate people and i really appreciate you guys educating us about you know the wild areas and then also how you know maybe some of these spots aren't as wild as we thought one of the ones i was kind of surprised by but you know it was colorado colorado had a pretty small remote area it surprised us too it was you know all the rocky mountain states we figured were going to be very remote mm -hmm. um but it was less than 10 miles from a road. It's less than nine miles from a road. And that was very surprising. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, looking at, looking at Colorado, you know, you see all these mountains and stuff. You think, well, there's gotta be, you know, a road there. But if you start zooming in, <laughs> you'll see, you know, there are a lot of roads on the mountains, around the mountains, into the mountains. Yeah. There really yeah. are. They're mainly associated with the mining industry okay. out west mm -hmm. um but others other stuff too you know r ranching and uh, blm lands have roads on them and uh, you know you know colorado there has to be something that we're working on is is a concept called road density okay within a state and just because a state doesn't have um a really super large single maximum distance from a road um, doesn't necessarily indicate that the rest of the state is is you know completely um, developed or you understand what I'm saying mm -hmm. uh, you know there may not be as many roads in Colorado as uh, say the next state and just because it didn't have the remotest 
state remote spot doesn't necessarily mean there are more roads per unit area in that state. So we're kind of working on a concept to compare state by state with uh, called road density. And we still think a place like Colorado is a fairly remote state Mm -hmm. and you can get a a lot of places within it uh, away from roads. But we're just not sure about that. I think that would be a heck of a lot more time staring at a computer for Miss Rebecca Thanks, here. Honey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there may be a lot of spots in Colorado that are less than nine miles from a road versus mm-hmm. not many spots in Wyoming that are 21 miles from a road. Sure, that makes sense. You know, even like the Trans-Pecos area of Texas, I mean, some of these private roads, really might, there might be one rancher drive it once a month. You know, yeah, uh, right. But they're they're there, so that fits the qualification. But it's uh, and also that's not cal- that leads to the being able to calculate it. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, in Florida, a lot of the larger roads, the state roads and the U.S. highways, there are data for number of vehicles per day that mm-hmm. travel those roads. But for obviously most of the roads in the country, that is that is not available. So we couldn't really use that. Frequency of travel in part of our definition. Has there ever been any? Uh, have there ever been any of these sites in a national and scenic river area? Yeah. Um, excuse me. National. That was a, a national uh, recreation area. Let's see. I'm thinking. We certainly traveled through some on the way to remote spots. Okay, no, there there were no national scenic river. There was national recreation area okay. and boundary uh, Rio Grande. So the Rio Grande in Texas was our our mechanism of mm-hmm. travel okay. uh, get into and out of the Texas remote spot. Our primary method was along the Rio Grande. We, mm-hmm. we put in a canoe at at Rio Grande Village um, in the Big Bend National Park and canoed downstream through that marvelous Boquillas Canyon area. And at some point, that got us to within about a mile and a half of the remotest location in all of Texas. And then we did the rest of it on foot up the side of a cactus-laden boulder scree field of a mountain. Uh, But anyway, that, that Rio Grande area would be a national wild and scenic river. You mentioned mining, like old mining things around mountains and stuff like that. And, you know, mentioned remoteness being part of like, you know, wildlife management and how we can restrict some access in terms of vehicles and things like that. And I've been doing some research on uh, the Rio Grande cutthroat, a trout. Um, Actually, there used to be Rio Grande cutthroat in that part of Texas um, in some certain drainages. And it was documented by numerous people back in in the late 1800s. And uh, it seems like one of the um, issues with it was uh, stream pollution and stuff and some different mm-hmm. access and damming off mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff in that region of the Trans-Pecos because of that kind of access, you know. So once again, it shows mm-hmm. even looking back, some of these access issues might have been problems for, you know, stream quality or water flow and all of those Absolutely. kind of things that we that we look at. Absolutely, Chester. You're touching on a really important aspect here of, of what we're trying to do, which is raise awareness nationwide about the impact that roads have on ecology all over the country. And you just touched on a great one there. Uh, good on you for, man, you, you know a lot about wildlife all over the country. That's great. I didn't didn't know that about Rio Grande Cutthroat. I'm obsessed but with this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> I love it. We are too, man. It's 
it's a it's a challenge learning something um, special like that uh, state by state, and it's a reward, or sometimes not, unfortunately, when you find out something negative about yeah. how roads are negatively impacting what used to be there. But uh, golly, off the top of our heads, you know, there's a vast body of literature out there as well about the effects of roads on ecology. But, you know, uh, any of us could rattle off 10, 15, or 20 right off the top of your head, and they're just, they're barriers. Yeah, well, there's a lot of work going on at, at the federal level for, like, uh, migration corridors and things right now. And, yeah. um, you know, the largest migration in the lower 48 is a mule deer migration in Wyoming. Uh, and, you know, there's highways and all kind of stuff, and they're working on ways for underpasses for wildlife and a lot of things trying to realize that roadkill, just roadkill, for example, uh, mm-hmm. is not only a problem for the wildlife, it's a problem for people getting killed. It's a problem for the insurance industry paying up lots of money, um, a lot of different yeah. things like that. So I think when you do research like this and then you can present it, 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 it just helps the cause and gives us, like you said, in your original intent, that great body of information to go out there so other people can take that and do what they need to do with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, man. So this is uh, such a fascinating conversation. And one of the, you mentioned uh, the Dakotas. And when I looked at both North and South Dakota, I, I hate to say it, I was disappointed. And I mean, that's like from where I'm at to my house. I mean, it's not very welcome far. Welcome to our life. <laughs> yeah, welcome to our world too, man. Yeah. You know, you think the Dakotas, you think, man, there's got, you know, they got mountain goats up in the Badlands and you got black-footed ferrets that have been replenished in certain areas and you got all this stuff and then you got like three miles. Yep. Yeah. The oil industry was pretty significant for North Dakota. When we documented that spot, it was, I guess, in the height of the Bakken oil boom. Mm -hmm. It was such an eye-opening experience. On our way to the remote spot, it was just like we were in the middle of a city with all of the uh, infrastructure and traffic associated with that oil extraction up there. You mentioned railroads. You mentioned railroads earlier. Um, how much do railroads factor into this? Not much. Um, usually when there's a railroad, there are access roads along the railroad. We have not, to my memory, come across a situation when when we thought, okay, here's where the remote spot is, but there's a railroad. Do railroads count? Um, we've had that problem with airports. Okay. You know, um, mm-hmm. remote airports that yep. have fly-ins. Um, but usually when you have those types of situations, there are roads that support those those infrastructures. Mm-hmm. So yeah. railroads have not been an issue. Private land mining, uh, timber operation, and oil industry have been a huge issue. Um, railroads not so much, and air, remote airports a few times. The oil industry right now in the Trans-Pecos of Texas. As a matter of fact, it, the, the thing got canceled. I was going to be going to a uh, conference on this out in Alpine. Uh, but uh, there's a lot more development in things with the fracking and all that stuff that's going on out in those areas. And, and uh, it's certainly having some impact. It has you know, a huge man. impact on the the remote spot of Texas because I digitized in so many roads associated with that yep. industry that were not part of the Texas state road file, um, either because 
it's on private land and they're not counting it, or I think more likely it's just that it is it is so new and it's, they can't keep up with putting those roads. It's into the their last database. five to ten years, basically, um, basically yeah. a decade ago, maybe twelve years ago, it kind of started and there was a boom and peak. And it's radically different out in some of those areas now in terms of access and things like that. And, you know, one of the things I'm always really, I'm a hunter. I, I like to feed my family wild game and I fish. I despise poaching. And, um, you know, I like legal wildlife management. And one of the things that, you know, like I talk a lot to people in Africa and different areas is some of these old roads and things that really get abandoned for mining or whatever or make incredible access points for poachers wanting to be away off the grid a little bit and to go do market poaching or whatever. And that's a concern of mine about some of these kind of uh, access points. That's a good point to be sure. Um, you know, there's so many, you know, there's so many impacts to yep. remoteness mm-hmm. by the presence of roads and industry. Yep. And so we believe millions of Americans like you and like us hunger to be outdoors, but mm-hmm. we also kind of grit our teeth when we see anything of human origin uh, outside when we thought we were in a remote area. And mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times we just kind of balk and shrug our shoulders uh, when we see some kind of human sign uh, way out there on our way to some of these more remote locations. You know, it could be anything. And we just call it, man, oh, man, our our remoteness factor just took a hit. Yeah. And there's so many ways to hit it. Yeah, I found, now I wasn't obviously doing a quest like yours, but I went into a piece of public land in Texas a couple years back, and I went as far back as I'd ever been. And uh, what did I find? Well, I didn't. I didn't go and no, I didn't inspect it for meth. But I'm pretty sure I know what I found was a meth lab. Uh, yeah, and you, I am. Uh, I'm not slow, but I'm not fast. But that day, the good Lord gave him, granted me great speed to get the heck out of Dodge and get, <laughs> get back to my vehicle and whatever. So, um, you know, you never know what you're going to encounter out there. I don't mind seeing footprints. You know, that's okay. That means someone else has enjoyed this too. But, you know, when you see vehicle access and things that allow for more development, more those kind of things, it gets, um, you know, it gets very, uh, it gets concerning, you know. And you look back what Henry David Thoreau, he said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And um, I totally agree with that, you know. And I think you mentioned the hunger for the public. And I think that's the positive of this, you know, uh, is that there is a great hunger for this. And, and, and what you guys, and I salute you for this, is the awareness raising. It takes awareness raising to make something possible, you know, and to make a movement happen or whatever. And so I salute you for being able to, my God, just do the math calculations, lady, and um, <laughs> and carry your daughter on your back while your husband's out there taking pictures and whatever he's doing. But uh, know that you guys have done this as a family, and I salute you for doing it as a family as well, because I mean, me and my wife, we have one daughter, Faith, and um, we try to, you know, she's not a wilderness girl. Like, like she's totally opposite of me on that. But she likes animals and stuff, you know. So um, mm-hmm. she'll go into the national park, but she ain't hiking in the backcountry with dad, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's not the grizzlies that would bother her. It's the bugs. Like, I hate bugs, dad, you know. So grizzly, she'd be like, hey, there's a bear. Uh, a mosquito, she's like running back to the vehicle, you know. So. But this part well, is fam- one of the other reasons we started Project Remote is that, um, we wanted to encourage other families to get out with their kids, not necessarily on 10-day backpacking trips, but sure. 
but to get out and it's and to learn from the good that we've learned, but also the mistakes that we've we've learned mm-hmm. um, having a kid outside. And so um, we are hoping that by seeing pictures of us and learning about all of the trips we've taken with our starting with 10 months old and then now she's 11. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that that could encourage others to get outside as well. Well, I'm young, for sure. <laughs> she couldn't say no to us when she was 10 months old. I hear you. Well, you started her at the right age, but um, that's right. That's it's right. a beautiful project. So, um, how many states have you mapped in total? Um, well, we have documented 38 states. Okay. So that's how, yeah. 38 states, and um, so you got you got quite a few left. Now, would you ever consider, and you're probably going to shoot me for even asking this, Canada? Absolutely, man. I'm already, we're already thinking about getting out of the country when this ends because there's going to be a giant hole, a void in our life. The the missing (laughs) set of adventures that we really hunger for. Yeah, I hear you. Every year, man. We just hunger for this stuff. It's become part of our fabric. And so. Uh, I imagine we'll have to fill it with something. And I'll tell you what, those provinces to the north of here in Canada, each and every one of them, well, let's just say Alaska would be a run-of-the-mill uh, remote spot if, if it were one of the Canadian provinces. Uh, there are more provinces up there that would have a, a considerably more remote location than our beloved Alaska, which we believe uh, will eventually contain the remotest location in all of America. And we're waiting, waiting as a family for just the right time to seize our opportunity to do Alaska and plan that trip. And it's definitely going to be about fundraising. Um, it's going to be part of it, to be sure. Um, no, I hear yeah, you. And that's a lot of projects. Out of this no, I hear you. So um, speaking of fundraising, I know you have a crowdfunding uh, at your um, website. Tell people how they can get a hold of you if they want to, if they have some something to contribute financially or information wise, or just want to reach out to you. Well, we have a website. It's projectremote.com. And on the front page is the link to our fundraising campaign to help us um, travel to more remote spots. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and our email address is on our website as well. So our um, project remote, we usually do, we have day jobs. This is not a, this is not a job for us, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, so we have to raise money to be able to travel during our off field season as biologists. And as biologists, we don't exactly uh, have high paychecks. Look, you're not raking in the bucks, let's be honest here. <laughs> I'm a wildlife journalist. I'm in your boat. Okay. Yes. Anything helps in terms of um, just the gas money um, to travel. We rarely stay in hotels. We camp when we're going across country. We're camping out. We're eating out of our cook stove. So um, this is not a a high high dollar project, but it it does cost money. Even the camping fees and the fees into the um, into the national forest and parks and stuff like that. Well, thanks for asking, man, but we love getting emails from people. We, we, I think we're answering emails almost once a day from interested people around the world, around the country. Um, we love answering questions, love interacting with people. You know, we used to have an interactive, a more interactive website where folks could leave comments and there'd be comment threads and all that. Mm-hmm. 
But dang it, man, the spammers got a hold of it and it just absolutely <laughs> melted everything. You so get all like the Russian comments you can't read, like on my website. So I don't do yeah, mine anymore. Yeah, and may- maybe that's our fault for not knowing Russian. I wish I knew more languages. Darn it! But uh, uh, it, it used to be the guys in Nigeria that would, you know, you can like, uh, we want to send you five million dollars. You know, it was those kind oh, of yeah. spammers. Yeah, now it's in Russian script. So the spammers oh, are man. out there doing what they're doing. But you know what? There's no spammers out in the wilderness. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to add one more thing about sure. our website. So for Project Remote, we're documenting the remotest location in each state, mm-hmm. but there's lots of remote areas in each state. So we've we've started a citizen science project okay. to engage the public to help us document remoteness mm-hmm. across the country. Um, and so we've started by calculating the remotest location of various wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. And we have some of those posted on our website under the citizen science link. And so the idea there is there's a, excuse me, there's, there's information on how we document the remote spots and there's coordinates for some of those, those wilderness areas so that people can go out, document the spot as we do, and then send us those data that we can then put up on our website. Oh, that's awesome. Anything the public can get engaged in, inspire them to go out in the wild and appreciate the wonderful creation out there is an amazing thing and uh thank you so much ryan and rebecca means for being on higher calling with chester moore oh thank you so much for having us all right it's been a pleasure thank you man for doing what you're doing you obviously have great influence on a lot of people and you have raised uh plenty of awareness i can tell this has been a real pleasure thanks man that's my honor and privilege maybe we'll have you back soon sounds great higher calling is brought to you by texas fishing game magazine our official sponsor you can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter and if you'd like to me to personally subscribe you to that newsletter because i actually can do that you can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. And you definitely subscribe to the newsletter. Three updates a week, killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fish and Game Magazine at fishgame.com. You've been listening to The Higher Calling. Hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at Chester at ChesterMoore.com. Follow him at the Chester Moore on Instagram and his blog at HigherCalling.net.